Bam 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 Welcome, everyone, to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. The most professional podcast out there. Mm-hmm. That's Lisa Linky. Hi. And I'm Misty Stinnett. Hi. Hi. No. <laughs> and this is the podcast where every week we read and review a wildly popular self-help book. Wildly. And uh, so that you don't have to. Or... If you like what you're hearing, you can go out and buy the book. You can gain all of that wisdom by being just a lazy, good-for-nothing, podcast-listening-dingus. Uh, Wowee. <laughs> just kidding. I love you all so much. I'm trying to, I'm trying to have an attitude. For How's those of going? you, for our listeners abroad, dingus is a, <laughs> a dork, a, a, a silly, silly nilly. Yes, thank you for explaining dingus with the word silly nilly. Um, cool, 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 cool. Um, wow, we've got a real humdinger <laughs> of a of a of a podcast for you today. Gee, wallop, um, Misty, Lisa. I am very pleased to bring you a book today. Oh, thank. I'm glad you prepared one. Yes, that is a place to start, Lisa. What do you have for us? I have. When Things Fall Apart by Pima Chodron. I don't know if I'm saying her name right, so you'll have to forgive me. But the author's name is Pima, P-E-M-A, and it's Chodron, C-H-O-D-R-O-N. And the O's have the little umlauts over them. Ooh, an umlaut. Uh, Wait, this sounds really sad. Great. When Things Fall Apart. This is a com- comedy. We're going to find some comedy. Uh, it's When Things <laughs> Fall Apart. Heart advice for difficult times. I love that. Yeah. I'm going to tell you, what would you like to know? Would you like to know about the author? Would you like to know about the book? What can I tell you? Tell me about the book and then tell me about the author. Well, the book was actually first printed in 1997. Oh, wow. Uh Uh-huh. But it is widely um, circulated and has been reprinted. Um, And it was featured on Oprah's, like, book club. And Oprah is a fan of Pima Chodron and has had her on, like, her Super Soul Sunday, I I think, and all that stuff. So this is, like, a very well-known book that I've I've personally never heard of it. Well, you have now. I'm excited. It is uh, 147 pages, including the bibliography. Oh, so it's not too bad. How big's the font? Let me see. Lisa's holding the hard copy. Oh, yeah. It's average size font. I was hoping it'd be big. (laughs) I'm always hoping it'll be big, but for 147 pages. <laughs> I'm always hoping it'll be big. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so um, my friend Colleen gave me this book for my birthday for the podcast. Oh, thank you, Colleen. Yes. The best friends smart. give homework as gifts. Great job, Colleen. <laughs> well, she knows and loves our podcast, and she was like, this would be a great gift for you to have to read. So I didn't have to buy this book, I so I love loved it. I love a labor-intensive gift. Thank you, Colleen. <laughs> well, I loved it because I didn't have to buy it. And yeah, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I remember hearing and reading about this book when it um, when, when Oprah was talking about it in mm. the early 2000s, and I, I think I remember kind of sort of reading part of it but not getting it and now it was a good time for me to kind of sit it sit it sit down and read it look i'm gonna ask the burning question here what where would we all be if oprah didn't read books Uh, we'd have a lot more hobbies (laughs) thanks oprah (laughs) thanks oprah um can i tell you quickly about the cost of the book yeah um it is between thirteen and fourteen dollars hardcover, depending on where you look. Okay, eleven fifty-two paperback on Amazon. So specific. Uh, Twenty-one dollars on Audible. Kindle uh, thirteen ninety-nine. Great. And what does the cover look like, Lise? It's um, this version is a serene-looking orchard with um, yellow leaves in, in fall falling down, and it's a very like orderly row of trees. Oh, God, you know what the color scheme looks like? What? The 70s. 
Um, it's got the like. Do you do you all know when like that sort of goldenrod yellow color and brown and orange was put together a lot? It's that on a cream background. You're welcome. I mean, I think there's different versions you can buy if this color scheme doesn't. I w- I would like a little more neon. Cool, but I guess that doesn't go with the cool, cool, cool. Can I tell you about right? Pima? Yeah. Okay. Pima was born Deirdre Bloomfield Brown in 1936 in New York City. She attended Miss Porter School in Connecticut and graduated from the University of California at Berkeley. Hmm. She taught as an elementary school teacher for many years in both New Mexico and California. She has two children and three grandchildren. Okay. While in her mid-30s, she traveled to the French Alps and encountered Lama Chime Rinpoche. Um, I think that's what I'm saying. Yeah, Rinpoche. Rinpoche, excuse me, Rinpoche, with whom she studied for several years. She became a novice nun, Buddhist nun, oh, in 1974. Oh, this Lama person was a Buddhist nun? While studying with Lama Shime in London. His Holiness the 16th Karmapa came to England at the time, and Pima received her ordination from him. She is a Buddhist nun. Did that she, is why she has a different name. After she had kids? Or before she had kids? After she became a nun. Oh, Oh. Oh. Do you understand? She had a former life and then became a nun. I got it. Okay. Things fell apart. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Copy. So she met her root teacher, uh, and I, I apologize, I do not speak uh, Tibetan, so if I'm mispronouncing these words, uh, names, I apologize, uh, Chagyam Trungpa Rin, Rinpoche, um, and in in. Tibetan Buddhism, an uh, incarnate lama or highly respected religious teacher often uses a uh, honorific title is what Rinpoche means. And a root teacher <clears throat> is somebody who is, I guess, um, as I very, very basically understand it, is the person whom with you study. Mm. Um, and so you have their teachings that you pass on. Oh, mm-hmm. so it's very specific. Mm-hmm. You want to pick like the right mentor or person you're studying underneath. That's right. Right. Okay. Um, so she, uh, in, uh, Lama Chime, encouraged her to work with uh, Rinpoche, and it was with him that she ultimately made her most profound connection, studying with him from 1974 until his death in 1987. Wow. At the request of the 16th Karmapa, she received the full monastic ordination in the Chinese lineage of Buddhism in 1981 in Hong Kong. She served as the director of uh, Karma Z- Zong in Boulder until moving in 1984 to rural Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, to be the director of Gampo Abbey. Um, he, uh, Rinpo, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, asked her to work towards the establishment of a monastery for Western monks and nuns. Mm. She currently teaches in the United States and Canada and plans for an increased amount of time in solitary retreat under the guidance mm. of Venerable Zigar Kongtrol Rinpoche. So I'm not following a ton of this, but what I am getting from this is that she had a huge event happen to her, which I'm sure we'll hear about. Yes. She became a Buddhist monk. None. None, excuse me. And then um, really like climbed the ranks and was honored and studied under some really big people yeah. and and, be- and became like fully. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if in Tibetan Buddhism they have like big people do you know what I mean but yeah she was she was given a lot of um uh responsibility and trust and yeah okay yeah okay. and and asking her to work towards establishing a monastery for western monks and nuns I think is a big deal it sounds like a big yeah. deal and and uh also I think it's worth mentioning that you you said you think this might be another two-parter episode yes right I do only because she doesn't write like Eckhart Tolle but <clears throat> Which is why I like it, but um, the, it's very dense because she's basically kind of introducing the concept of meditation oh. and some um, Buddhist concepts in here and really explains them kind of uh, yeah. in, in basic language. Yeah, so if you've been listening along with us as we've been going, this these are apparently two two-parters back-to-back. Yeah. We didn't plan it. It's happening. We're here for it, and we're so glad that you all are here for it, yes, too. Yes, thank you. So uh, just to wrap up about her, she's interested in helping establish the monastic tradition in the West, as well as continuing her work with Buddhists of all traditions, sharing ideas and teachings. She's written several books, The Wisdom of No Escape, Start Where You Are, When Things Fall Apart, The Places That Scare You, No Time to Lose, and Practicing Peace in Times of War, and most recently, Smile at Fear. 
Man, those all sound like Lisa Linky friendly titles. Okay. Starting from where you're at or whatever the name of that one was. For real. Like. For yeah. real. Yeah. So um, this book is has got 22 chapters okay. plus an introduction. Okay. And the chapters are pretty short. Um, there's only a few that are maybe like nine or ten pages. And what, what were your first impressions when you first picked it up and started reading? I mean, I remember hearing her speak, and she's just like the most— f- Cute, funny, um, adorable. Like, you, here's a picture of her. Can you describe her? Oh, yeah. She, uh, you know what's funny is she has a really friendly face and the expression on it. I feel like she's my friend and, and we have a secret together. Yeah. 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 And she has her hair very short, mm-hmm. like all um, mm-hmm. uh, Buddhist uh, monks and nuns. And um, she's just very kind and thoughtful. I remember hearing from her from Oprah. So, Great. Great. And then she also writes some stuff that makes you, makes me laugh. Um uh, so it's she, a funny book. There's humor in it. There is humor. Oh, great! Um, and just some, a little something about her. In 1994, she was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. Oh, and so what's in 1990, that? um, that's kind of where you are. Con- you are constantly tired. Like you literally are just exhausted all the time. Wow! And it's chronic. So it's chronic. So um, I don't know if it's autoimmune. I don't know what it is, but um, uh, uh you might remember our friend Gay Hendricks talked about it. Mm. Mm-hmm. So did she do it to herself? Is yeah, that she what probably did. <laughs> um, so the, in the introduction, she talks about how in 1995 she took a sabbatical, and for 12 months she essentially did nothing. She said it was the most spiritually inspiring time of her life. Pretty much all I did was relax. I read and hiked and slept. I cooked and ate, meditated and wrote. I had no schedule, no agenda, and no, quote, shoulds. Mm. A lot got digested during this completely open, uncharted time. For one thing, I began to read slowly through two cardboard boxes of very raw, unedited transcripts transcripts of talks I had given from 1987 to 1994. And so then she started to kind of piece together what she had been talking about. Mm. And during this time, her editor contacted her and said, do you have anything that you might want to write about? And she said, I do. So um, so that that all sounds mysterious to me because I don't know why she was giving talks. I don't know. So I don't have the context. So. As part of, I believe, a Buddhist monk and nun, uh, ordained monk or nun lifestyle, instead of a sermon, I think they're giving lectures. She's teaching. Oh. That's what's happening. You're teaching about the Buddhist So that was after she had entered that life. Yes. Okay. Yes. Got it. So so she says, as, as I delved into the boxes, I could see that I still had a long way to go before fully appreciating what I had been taught. So she's still in the process of learning. Um, and I like that because she's not like, I'm not an authority. I'm just a practitioner, just like right. everyone. Just sort of yeah. conveying the information. Yeah. Okay. So um, here's a, a chapter, and I just want to show Misty so uh, she can help uh, approve what I'm about oh, to say. So every chapter starts with the title. And mm-hmm. this title of this chapter is Intimacy with Fear. Mm-hmm. And then there's a little quote sometimes a paragraph where she kind of takes the summation or the main point of the entire chapter and puts it there for you. Oh, right up at the top. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. So intimacy with fear. And she wrote, fear is a natural reaction to moving closer to the truth. Thanks. Got it. Next chapter. Okay. Um, We're going to do a little more. (laughs) So she says. Oh, that's so true, though. Isn't it? Yeah. She says, embarking on the spiritual journey is like getting into a very small boat and setting out on the ocean to search for unknown lands. With wholehearted practice comes inspiration, but sooner or later, we will also encounter fear. And she says, fear is a universal experience. Even the smallest insect feels it. Um, And no one ever tells us to stop running away from fear. We are very rarely told to move closer, Mm. just to be there, to become familiar with fear. She says, I once asked the Zen master, Koban Chino Roshi, how he related with fear. And he said, I agree. I agree. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um. But the advice we usually get is to sweeten it up, smooth it over, take a pill, or distract ourselves. But by Change all it means, in some way. Mm-hmm, yeah. make it go away. Yeah. I skipped a page. I realize I need to go back just a second. Thank you. Um, you know you're on thin ice with this podcast. I know. You know, you know we're evaluating you and judging you. Well, I feel like... Don't mess know, it up. You know, I love you. Just don't. <laughs> It's well, you know how you felt about Eckhart Tolle. Oh my God, so terrified. I feel this is out of my depth. Yeah, that was my, out. Of, yes, yes. Relate. But she's doing such a great job of making it accessible. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if I can't relate that, I've really done a bad. You're job. You're doing a great job. Great, thank you. Okay, fear is. She says, uh, fear is a universal experience. It is part of being alive. Something we all share. 
Fear is a natural reaction to moving closer to the truth. That's mm-hmm. the, the statement from the beginning mm-hmm. chapter at uh, the chapter. If we commit ourselves to staying right where we are, then our experience becomes very vivid. Things become very clear when there is nowhere to escape. Mm. And this is a theme that happens throughout the book. So she's really encouraging, I, as I'm assuming, kind of the the teachings of Buddhism, which is to to let go of this desire to leave when things get uncomfortable and stay in the moment and just be aware. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She says, um, impermanence becomes vivid in the present moment. In fact, anyone who stands on the edge of the unknown fully in the present without reference point experiences groundlessness. Mm-hmm. That's yes. when our understanding goes deeper, when we find that the present moment is a pretty vulnerable place and that this can be completely unnerving and completely tender at the same time. Yes. What we're talking about is getting to know fear, becoming familiar with fear, looking it right in the eye, not as a way to solve problems, but as a complete undoing of old ways of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and thinking. The truth is that when we really begin to do this, we're going to be continually humbled. Wow. That's when she says, no one ever tells us to stop running away from fear, and we are very rarely told to move closer. Mm-hmm. And that's when the Zen master said, I agree. I agree I with agree fear. I agree with fear. <laughs> um, So she says, we habitually spin off and freak out when there's even the merest hint of fear. We feel it coming and we check out. Mm -hmm. She says, it's good to know we do that, not as a way to beat ourselves up, but as a way to develop unconditional compassion. And I put a heart by that. I love you. Right? Why? Do you know, just that you put a heart by that. Oh, That's very sweet. Do you know what this reminds me of? What? So um, we're actually going to (laughs) have... This person as a, a guest on a mini-sode coming up. Um, but I had an acting teacher named Brian Letcher. Uh-huh. And you may know him from Scandal or Valor or many. He's a fabulous working actor and playwright. And um, I was taking one of his acting classes. And he did this exercise where he had us, you know, we just paired up in the class. And he had us sit for one minute, for 60 seconds. And stare at the other person to in the To stare eyes. at the oh, other person in the eyes tough. and not not check out, not smile, not deflect with humor or humorous eye raises or, you know, however yeah. the human mind squirms out of discomfort and just be there. And this might sound trite if you're listening to this, but if you do this with someone, even someone you're intimately familiar with, a parent, a child, your significant other, a sibling— like she was saying, it's it's tender and it's terrifying at the same time. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the exact words, even though you just read them. Mm-hmm. Um, that is such, it feels like the minute lasts forever. Yeah. It feels like I fully got to know that person, couldn't check out, couldn't escape, couldn't go anywhere. And it was really, it was really profound just to be in this one. And now Lisa and I are locking eyes. We can't stop, you guys. Right? Well, <laughs> this is how we die. We're going to be here till we're dead. <laughs> Sorry, Sav. You have the prettiest blue eyes, by the way. I love your brown eyes. Oh, thank you. Okay, great. We're continuing. Moving on. She says, so the next time you encounter fear, consider yourself lucky. This is where the courage comes in. Usually we think that brave people have no fear. The truth is that they are all intimate with fear. Mm. The trick is to keep exploring and not bail out even when we find that that's something, even when we find out that something is not what we thought. Mm. So she's inviting us to become intimate with fear. Yeah, to tolerate discomfort. Yes. Great. Um, The next chapter is called When Things Fall Apart. Hmm. She says, what happened to me when I uh, got—she's talking about when she went to the Abbey, the Gampo Abbey. Mm -hmm. She says, what happened to me when I got to the Abbey was that everything fell apart. All the ways I shield myself, all the ways I delude myself, all the ways I maintain my well-polished self-image, all of it fell apart. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't manipulate the situation. I'm going to be condensing and not read all of this because she tells a lot of stories in the book. Is she? Does she explain what happened to her to get her to the well, Abbey? Well, her um, Trungpa Rinpoche asked her to be the director of the Abbey, and she found herself there. And being a, as she says, being there was an invitation to test my love of a good challenge because in the first years, it felt like I was being boiled alive. <laughs> oh, my God. And here's why. So she said, I always thought of myself as a flexible, obliging person who was always well-liked by everyone. I've been able to carry this illusion throughout most of my life. And during the early years at the Abbey, I discovered that I had been living in some kind of misunderstanding. Oh, God. It wasn't that I didn't have good qualities. It was just that I was not the ultimate golden girl. I had so much invested in that image of myself, and it just wasn't holding together anymore. All of my unfinished business was exposed vividly and accurately in in living technicolor, not only to myself, but to everyone else as well. I, I'm sorry. I 
uh, forgive me if I'm jumping ahead, but I I thought that so she had a whole family, and I'm assuming something horrifying happened to them. I'm about to tell you. Oh, okay. That's okay. not horrifying. So she says, when things are shaky and nothing is working, we might realize that we are on the verge of something. We might realize this is a very vulnerable and tender place and that tenderness can go either way. We experience a sense of loss, loss of our loved ones, loss of our youth, loss of our life. Things falling apart is a kind of testing and also a kind of healing. We think that the point is to pass the test or to overcome the problem, but the truth is that things don't really get solved. They come together and they fall apart. Then they come together again and they fall apart Hmm. again. It's just like that. The healing comes from letting there be room for all of this to happen. Room for grief, for relief, for misery, for joy. When we think that something is going to bring us pleasure, we don't know what's really going to happen. When we think that something is going to give us misery, we don't know. Letting there be room for not knowing is the most important thing of all. Hmm. Then she introduces this concept called um, uh, samsara, which is in, in Buddhism. Thinking that we can find some lasting pleasure and avoid pain is what in Buddhism is called samsara. And it's a hopeless cycle that goes around and around endlessly and causes us to suffer greatly. Yeah, because we're always disappointed, right? Yeah. That pain's back. Well, that we think we can avoid it and we think we can seek pleasure. So we think we're failing when we fail at either of those. Right. The very first noble truth of the Buddha points out that suffering is inevitable for human beings as long as we believe that things last that they don't disintegrate, mm. that they can be counted on to satisfy our hunger for security. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, she says, from this point of view, the only time we ever know what's really going on is when the rug's been pulled out and we can't find anywhere to land. Yep. Your face just got really interesting. What was your thought? Uh, that That's exactly what I experienced when my dad died very suddenly. Yeah. Everything felt impermanent. Uh, everything. I just looked around. It was like I had seen the Matrix. Yeah. And I couldn't unsee it. And like, uh, I, I think we talked about this on an, another episode, but in Harry Potter, there are uh, the horseless carriages for the first few yes. books that carry the kids to the school. And then suddenly, I'm, I'm you know, my friends who listen to this podcast who are Harry Potter fans are probably shouting, yeah, yeah, shouting the name. <laughs> Sorry, Allie. Sorry, Faith. Um, but and then one year he can suddenly see the horses and he freaks out and he's like, "Oh my God, there are horses now!" You know, and, and Lu- other Luna Lovegood's like, them. "They've been here the whole time," yeah. and other kids can't see them because they haven't seen death, death yet, yeah. and you can only see them when you've seen death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that just rings very true because it's like when you're grieving and when it's sudden, it's like, "Oh my God!" I mean. Not there is nowhere to land. You can't check out of fear. Yeah, and so you just have to sit with it because you can't escape it. Yeah. So this is ringing very true so far. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm going to tell you uh, her story. Okay. She says, "I remember so vividly a day in early spring when my whole reality gave out on me. Although it was before I had heard any Buddhist teachings, it was what some would call a genuine spiritual experience. It happened when my husband told me he was having an affair." We lived in northern New Mexico. I was standing in front of our adobe house drinking a cup of tea. I heard the car drive up and the door bang shut. Then he walked around the corner, and without warning, he told me that he was having an affair and he wanted a divorce. I remember the sky and how huge it was. I remember the sound of the river and the steam rising up from my tea. There was no time, no thought. There was nothing, just the light and a profound, limitless stillness. Then I regrouped and picked up a stone and threw it at him. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Pima. (laughs) Get it, girl. This is what I love about her because she do keep it real. (laughs) She says, life is a good teacher and a good friend. To stay with that shakiness, to stay with that broken heart, with a rumbling stomach, with the feeling of hopelessness Mm. and wanting to get revenge, that is the path of true awakening. Sticking with that uncertainty, getting the knack of relaxing in the midst of chaos, learning not to panic, this is a spiritual path. Mm. Getting the knack of catching ourselves, of gently and compassionately catching ourselves, is the path of the warrior. And gently and compassionately catching ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's really nice. Mm -hmm. Uh, The next chapter is called This Very Moment is the Perfect Teacher. Wait, I have to know. I'm sorry. I know I'm jumping ahead. But she had kids. Should she just run off to a monastery and like abandon her kids and become a nun? No, I I think they're grown now and they have their own kids. Oh, so she did this after. Yeah. Oh. Maybe. 
Oh, I'm so relieved. I mean, that sounds really painful. Don't get me wrong. That sounds terrible. But I was really worried that she's like, also, she died. This was her second marriage, I believe. She had a first marriage that ended in divorce, and this was the second marriage, I believe. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm relieved everyone's alive and well. Um, Okay, this very moment is the perfect teacher. Generally speaking, we we regard discomfort in any form as bad news. Hmm. But for practitioners or spiritual warriors, people who have a certain hunger to know what is true, feelings like disappointment, embarrassment, irritation, resentment, anger, jealousy, and fear, instead of being bad news, are actually very clear moments that teach us where it is that we're holding back. Hmm. Um, I wrote, this is why I don't want to 54321 out of emotions. Oh, yeah. which uh, is a reference, everybody, if you are if you haven't heard that episode, that's a reference from The Five Second Rule by Mel Robbins, mm-hmm. um, who basically, you know, advises counting backwards, five, four, three, two, one, and then moving and taking action to get yourself out of a mental state or procrastination or mm-hmm. to get a task done. She says, they're like messengers that show us with clarifying, cl- with terrifying clarity, exactly where we're stuck. This very moment is the perfect teacher, and lucky for us, it's with us wherever we are. Uh, lucky us. And also, it's sometimes, I mean, when I'm in the grip of anxiety, it is very hard to do this. But every now and then, I'm able to have a, a thought from 30,000 feet, which is, oh, my God, cool. Like, my body thinks I'm in danger, and it's alerting me, and it's giving me all the fear and adrenaline and yes. epinephrine. And, like, it's working. It's doing its job, and it's there for me. And isn't that cool? Yes. That is cool. I think it's cool. Um So then she talks about meditation, okay? She says, meditation is an invitation to notice when we reach our limit and to not get carried away by hope and fear. Mm -hmm. Through meditation, we're able to clearly see what's going on with our thoughts and emotions, and we can also let them go. That's the first time I've ever heard, don't get carried away by hope. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Nobody's ever been like, don't get carried away by hope. Well, as we'll talk about later, um, about dharmas, that there's like the opposite sides of a coin. Mm. Um. Things like disappointment and anxiety are mes- are messengers telling us that we're about to go into unknown territory. Mm. The spiritual journey involves going beyond hope and fear, stepping into unknown territory, continually moving forward. Mm-hmm. In the teachings of Buddhism, we hear about egolessness, which I thought, yeah, uh-huh. hey Eckhart Tolle, uh-huh. it sounds difficult to grasp. What are they talking about anyway? When the teachings are about neuroses, however, we feel right at home. Yep. <laughs> She says, that is something we really understand. That's what she wrote. But egolessness, when we reach our limit, if we aspire to know that place fully, which is to say that we aspire to neither indulge nor repress, a hardness in us will dissolve. We will be softened by the sheer force of whatever energy arises, the energy of anger, the energy of disappointment, the energy of fear. When it's not solidified in one direction or another, that very energy pierces us to the heart and it opens us. This is the discovery of egolessness. Because we're just being. It is when our all our usual schemes fall apart. Mm. Reaching our limit is like finding a doorway to sanity and the unconditional goodness of humanity rather than meeting an obstacle or a punishment. Mm. So how does that relate for you with what Eckhart Tolle said about egoless? I'm glad you asked because I was just thinking about how he was saying the next time someone tries to humiliate you or reprimand you or or embarrass you, you know, or so, somehow minimize you in a situation. What would happen if you didn't react, you didn't defend yourself, mm-hmm. you just sat there and just were in that moment, which mm-hmm. I think is something unfathomable for most of us because, you know, who wants to sit there and be berated or, mm-hmm. you know, minimized? Um, but he was saying, like, you will realize that you don't get smaller and you aren't demolished. You aren't annihilated. And, you know, like if you in and in the same way, he says, don't attach too much to good things and don't attach too much to terrible things. And that's really you'll find out who you are when you get to the layer beyond that. Yeah. And so I think what was missing for me with Tolly mm. is like, how do you do that? How do you sit there and not have thoughts in your mind? I don't think he's saying get rid of thoughts. I think he's just saying, like, well, chill. For me, this book explained that through the practice of meditation, mm-hmm. you can 
notice things without having an opinion, without having right. Does that make sense? Like, oh, look, that's a thought. Oh, that's a feeling. This seemed like I could sit in the face of somebody berating me. Because you have already meditated and done that. Because I've had yeah. the experience of noticing thoughts come and go. Oh, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense, yeah. Yeah, I think I think Eckhart in his books take, takes for granted, you know, some of the practice that might already be involved. Which is fine. Yeah. I just think for me, I, I, I get stuck on that. Like, well, which well is, how I do I do that? I think what I like that? about yeah. this book is that she's like very, very kind of walks you through it, which is amazing. Oh, great. So she says, we don't sit in meditation to become good meditators. We sit in meditation so that we'll be more awake in our lives. Mm. It's an interesting thought, right? I love that. How we stay in the middle between indulging and repressing is by acknowledging whatever rises without judgment, letting the thoughts simply dissolve, and then going back to the openness of this very moment. That's what we're actually doing in meditation. Up come all these thoughts, but rather than squelch them or obsess with them, we acknowledge them and let them go. Then we just come back to being here. I love that. We're like the creamy filling of an Oreo. Yes. Right in the middle. Right. Neutral. She says, after a while, that's how we relate with hope and fear in our daily lives. Out of nowhere, we stop struggling and relax. We stop talking to ourselves and come back to the freshness of the present moment. This is something that evolves gradually, gradually, patiently over time. How long does this process take? I would say it takes the rest of our lives. Thank you. Thank you. She's a straight shooter. I do love it. Wait, I can't help but think like my judgment about that is like, well, isn't life going to be boring if you're not it's it's not about avoiding drama but it's like okay if you never get excited or hopeful about something or if you come at everything from a neutral perspective are you going to be bored well i don't know that she says come at it from a neutral perspective i what i do think she's saying is be aware of the things that come up and don't get attached to them so i mean so if i'm like oh my god i just want a car fine you know, like, is that it? But that seems boring rather but than like, yeah. But also, she's living life as a Buddhist nun. Yeah. But, I mean, what what do you, Lisa, think? Like, do you think that sounds boring or do you think that I sounds mean, peaceful? Piece of me that's like, yeah, but I also am not going to live my life as a Buddhist nun. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, these are her teachings. This is what she would say to people, you know, if she were lecturing, right? Mm. And she's helping people understand how to... Um take the practice of Buddhism and entertain it in their everyday life. Okay. And some of the stuff we'll talk later, she does talk about like how to use it in our everyday lives. Which but, is great. I get. I don't know. I guess my like, my remaining lingering question is like, okay, cool. So you reach this very peaceful state, but like if you, if you're trying to always detach from anger or hope or joy or anything, what's the appeal? Or is that me just not knowing What's in that state for a long time? Having read the book, I think the appeal is that you are uh, constantly in a state of, like, compassion and gratitude for the present moment. Mm. Okay. I don't know. All right. Um, She says, we might think as we become more open that it's going to take bigger catastrophes for us to reach our limit. The interesting thing is that as we open more and more, it's the big ones that immediately wake us up and the little things that catch us off guard. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's true. Um. Awakeness is found in our pleasure and our pain, our confusion and our wisdom, available in each moment of our weird, unfathomable, ordinary, everyday lives. Okay, so this next chapter called Relax As It Is is about the actual practice of meditation. So um, her lama or her, you know, Rinpoche asked, um, was teaching people how to do this. Mm-hmm. And he was telling people that really to focus on the out breath without making it like a big deal. And mm. that this out breath is really just kind of this place of not knowing what could come next, right? Like yeah. you could, that could be your last out breath ever, right? Like that oh could. Oh my God, we do all have last out breaths. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that this, instead of um, um, having people try to sit a perfect way or not think or whatever, yeah. cause them to have problems. So just concentrating on that out breath was really this opportunity. Um, he would say, touch the outbreath and let it go. Have a light and gentle attention on the outbreath, or to be one with the breath as it relaxes outward. Mm-hmm. So then uh, it says, after some time, he added another refinement to the instruction. He began to ask us to label our thoughts thinking. 
Yeah. So we'd be sitting there with the out-breath, and before we knew what had happened, we were gone, planning, worrying, fantasizing, completely in another world, totally, mm-hmm. the world totally made of thoughts. You just described every meditation I've exactly. ever had. <laughs> At the point when we realized we'd gone off, we were instructed to say to ourselves, thinking, and without making it a big deal, to simply return again to the out-breath. Mm-hmm. Saying thinking is a very interesting point in the meditation. It's at the point when we can consciously train in gentleness and in developing a non-judgmental attitude. The word for loving kindness in Sanskrit is M-A-I-T-R-I, Maitri. I'm going to say it. It's how I'm going to say it. I love it. Great job. Maitri is also translated as unconditional friendliness. Unconditional friendliness. So each time you say to yourself thinking, you are cultivating that unconditional friendliness towards whatever arises in your mind. Since this kind of unconditional compassion is difficult to come by, this simple and direct method for awakening is exceedingly precious. Hmm. Sometimes our thoughts and memories terrify us and make us feel totally miserable. Thoughts go through our minds all the time, and when we sit, we are providing a lot of space for them to arise. Mm -hmm. Like clouds in a big sky or waves in a vast sea, all of our thoughts are given the space to appear. If one hangs on and sweeps us away, whether we call it pleasant or unpleasant, the instruction is to label it all thinking with as much openness and kindness as we can muster and let it dissolve back into the big sky. Mm. When the clouds and waves immediately return, it's no problem. We just acknowledge them again and again with unconditional friendliness, labeling them just as thinking and letting them go again and again and again and again. She says, sometimes people use meditation to try to avoid bad feeling and disturbing thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, but right from the beginning, it's helpful to always remind yourself that meditation is about opening and relaxing with whatever arises without picking and choosing. It's definitely not meant to repress anything, and it's not intended to encourage grasping either. So so I use the Headspace app for yes. meditation. Yes. If you um, are curious about it or want to try it, uh, for everybody listening, I at least when I first downloaded it, they had a free 10-day yes. course. Yes. It's guided meditations with this really um, lovely sounding British man Andy. Andy. Andy, yes. Uh, and he, uh, one of the ones that I did for, I did a meditation on, I think it was self-esteem or judgment. And he had us do exactly what she's describing. He he actually was a Buddhist monk yes. for a long time yes. before he started this meditation app. And uh, he has us label it thinking or feeling. Mm-hmm. And, and just to let it go once we'd done that. And I found that to be very effective and i really love the analogy of waves in an ocean yes i think that's great she um talks about actually like how to physically sit down and um, meditate if you want to and like how to physically do it i'm gonna skip over that great she says the most difficult times for many of us are the ones we give ourselves yet it's Mm. never too late or too early to practice loving kindness oh that's what else i was gonna say is Mm -hmm. just you know in reading so many of these books and trying a lot of different tactics and techniques and strategies it i just find over and over again that i am reminded that the more i can practice accepting the present moment and exactly where i am the happier i am Mm -hmm. the less i suffer because i can't always change what's going on but if i can at least meet it where it is yes yeah and what she says is what makes this loving kindness such a different approach is that we're not trying to solve a problem in fact, we're giving up control altogether and letting concepts and ideals fall apart. I mean, easier said than done. Sure. This starts with realizing that whatever occurs is neither the beginning nor the end. It's just the same kind of normal human experience that's been happening to everyday people from the beginning of time. Isn't that terrifying, though? Yes. Endless cycle of yes. soylent green as people. Yes. Hmm. But as soon as we accept that, she's saying that there's a freedom in that. Yeah, we're like, this is what it is, and we can't change it, and we're all going to die, so bye. Yes. Um, and then she, this this reminded me of Eckhart Tolle. She says, there is a teaching on the three kinds of awakening, awakening from the dream of ordinary sleep, awakening at the death from the dream life, and awakening into full enlightenment from the dream of delusion. Oh. Right? Some Didn't people he... call that woke. <laughs> um. So she's, she's like, we can spend our whole lives escaping. We can spend our whole lives escaping, or you can dissolve the resistance uh, by meeting 
meeting life face to face. When you feel resentment because the room is too hot, you could meet the heat and feel its fieriness and its heaviness. When you feel resentment because the room is too cold, you could meet the cold and feel its iciness and its bite. Mm-hmm. When we want to complain about the rain, we could feel its wetness instead. When we worry because the wind is shaking our windows, we could meet the wind and hear its sound. Cutting our expectations for a cure is a gift we can give ourselves. Mm. But I mean, wouldn't she also advocate for like, cool, I'm feeling it, I'm meeting the heat, and now I'm going to get up and turn the fucking thermostat down. Like, well, I think that's the, I think that's Because it's the, not just about enduring anything. I mean, I think the superpower is like you could endure something, but if you can well, make yourself more comfortable, wouldn't you? It's interesting you? you interrupted me right there because our next line is, there is no cure for hot and cold. They will go on forever. Okay. After, so I'm going to go okay, on. bye. Bye. She says, after we have died, the ebb and flow will still continue. Mm-hmm. Like the tides of the sea, like day and night, this is the nature of things. Being able to appreciate, being able to look closely, being able to open our minds, that's the core of Maitri. When the rivers and air are polluted, when families and nations are at war, when homeless wanderers fill the hi- when homeless wanderers fill the highways, these are traditional signs of a dark age. Another that is people become another is that people become poisoned by self doubt and become cowards. Mm. Practicing loving kindness towards ourselves seems as good as way as any to start illuminating the darkness of difficult times. Being preoccupied with our self-image is like being deaf and blind. It's like standing in the middle of a vast field of wildflowers with a black hood over our heads. It's like coming upon a tree of singing birds while wearing earplugs. There's so much resentment and so much resistance to life. So I think her concept of this is loving kindness, right? Yeah. And our loving kindness is, all I think, really framed around being taking care of ourselves and being loving to ourselves. Yeah. And she's also turning expanding that concept into this can mean staying present when it's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. loving kindness can mean oh i am very uncomfortable right now yeah and that's okay and what's coming up for me in this moment and Mm -hmm. what am i feeling and what do i want to do do i want to run do i want Mm -hmm. to buy something do i want do you know what i mean yeah so i think she's trying to expand that awareness Does that make sense? It, no, absolutely. And I, I love the image of standing in a field of wildflowers. With a hood. With a hood over your head. Yeah. That's very sad to me. So this next chapter is called Not Causing Harm. Okay. Um, Wait, stand by. <laughs> when I <laughs> when I went to my little sister's high school graduation, this the commencement speech was unbelievable. The guy was like, you don't have to cure cancer. Just don't spread it. Well, He's not wrong. It was, I mean, it was just, I was on the edge of my seat. It was amazing. He's not wrong. So this chapter is all about how uh, refraining, okay? Mm-hmm. Not habitually acting out impulsively. Um, and she wants us to, uh, the ground of not causing harm is mindless. Mindfulness, not mindlessness. Being mindful. <laughs> um She says, because we have basic goodness, basic wisdom, basic intelligence, we can stop harming ourselves and harming others. Because of mindfulness, we see things when they arise. Mm -hmm. So it all comes through learning to pause for a moment, learning not to just impulsively do the same thing again and again and again. It's a transformative experience to simply pause instead of immediately filling up the space. Yeah, I had a – when I first started going to therapy – my therapist kept talking about mindfulness, and I was like, okay, I get it, but how do I practice it? I remember being very frustrated, and I said, what are some exercises I can do to try and be better at being mm-hmm. mindful? Mm-hmm. She said, take a walk outside mm-hmm. and notice the individual leaves on a tree. Mm-hmm. When the wind blows, mm-hmm. try to notice it against your skin. Try to feel, is it hot or is it cold? Is the sunshine mm-hmm. shining down? To what really does that feel like? To, body. Have, to really be in your body. Yeah. And I, I found that so freeing because I thought I was going to have to sit there and meditate and like try and, you know, somehow do some sort of homework exercise. But it was like, no, just take a lovely walk mm-hmm. and notice things or my favorite mindful eating, mm-hmm. which is when even just your morning coffee what does it smell like? What does it feel like when it hits your tongue? Yeah. What does it feel like going down your throat? It just makes everything feel like it's this glorious treat and like it's a <laughs> miracle and I love it. Um, so this part I thought was really interesting. She says, um, well-being of body is like a mountain. A lot happens on a mountain. 
It hails, the winds come up, it rains, it snows, the suns get hot, clouds cross over, animals shit and piss on the mountain, it gets and so its do period. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People leave their trash and other people clean it up. Many things come and go on this mountain, but it just sits there. Oh my God, I've now had a lot of empathy for mountains. Right? When we've seen ourselves completely, there's a stillness of body that is like a mountain. We no longer get jumpy, have to scratch our noses, pull our ears, punch somebody, go running from the room, or drink ourselves into oblivion. Mm. A thoroughly good relationship with ourselves results in being still, which doesn't mean we don't run and jump and dance about. It means there's no compulsiveness. We don't overwork, overeat, oversmoke, overseduce. In short, we begin to stop causing harm. Hmm. So she's basically saying we have to stop causing harm to ourselves before we can stop causing har- harm out- outwards. Fuck, I just never thought about overworking as self-harm. <laughs> Remember when we talked about and uh-huh, uh-huh. no, I I know, and I I don't mean to you know we only have our own experience to bring to this and hermeneutical lenses Thank as you. we know. Thank you. Um, but yeah, I can't I can't help but go. Oh shit! I chose the like most disguisey one. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I do. So so just like maybe I should take twelve months off and just relax and hike and run. Shit, if you're all good, <laughs> sounds nice. She says not causing harm requires staying awake. Part of being awake is slowing down enough to notice what we say and do. Hmm. At the root of all the harm we cause is ignorance. Through meditation, that's what we begin to undo. If we see that we have no mindfulness, that we rarely reframe, that we have little well-being, that it is not confusion, that's the beginning of clarity. Hmm. Um, so I'm going to do this next chapter, and then I think we'll uh, we'll We'll, we'll wrap, wrap it, up it up until the second part. Okay. This next chapter is called Hopelessness and Death. Thank you. <laughs> what a great way to end, Lise. But it's good because um, I think this is going to explain the Dharma, uh, which is interesting. So, I don't even know what a Dharma is. Turning your mind towards the Dharma does not bring security or confirmation. What's a Dharma? In fact, when your mind turns toward the Dharma, you fearlessly acknowledge impermanence and change and begin to get the knack of hopelessness. What's I a said, goddamn Dharma? I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> hold hold tight. Um, without giving up hope that there's somewhere better to be, that there's someone better to be, we will never relax within who we are or where we are. Oh, God, I would like to do that so much. Okay. To think that we can finally get it all together is unrealistic. Ah, shit. Um. At every turn, we realize once again that it's completely hopeless. We can't get the ground under our feet. Cool, 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 cool. The difference between theism and non-theism is not whether one or does not believe in God. It's an issue that applies to everyone, including both Buddhists and non-Buddhists. Theism is a deep-seated conviction that there's some hand to hold. That if we just do the right thing, someone will appreciate us and take care of us. It means thinking there's always going to be a babysitter available when we need one. Oh, damn. It sounds like she's throwing shade. We are all inclined to abdicate our responsibilities and delegate our authority to something outside ourselves. Mm. Non-theism is relaxing with the ambiguity and uncertainty of the present moment without reaching for anything to protect ourselves. Oh, thank you, Pima children. Dharma isn't a belief. It's not dogma. It is a total appreciation of impermanence and change. Mm. The teachings disintegrate when we try to grasp them. We have to experience them without hope. Mm. The whole of life is like that. This is the truth, and the truth is inconvenient. It is very inconvenient, wildly inconvenient. The first noble truth of the Buddha is that when we feel suffering, it doesn't mean that something is wrong. What a relief. Finally, someone told the truth. Suffering is part of life, and we don't have to feel it's happening because we personally made the wrong move. Yeah. In reality, however, when we feel something, when we feel suffering, we think that something is wrong. Mm-hmm. I said, this is why, is this why self-help exists? Yep. <laughs> as long as we're addicted to hope, we feel that we can tone our experience down or liven it up or change it somehow, and we continue to suffer a lot. I mean, every single book we've read, besides The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson and A New Earth, nobody has, everybody has said, here's how to make it better, change it stronger, faster, more aware, da 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 da. Yeah. Wah. Well, um, okay, she says, <laughs> in a non theistic 
In a non-theistic state of mind, abandoning hope is an affirmation. It's the beginning of the beginning. You could even put abandoned hope on your refrigerator door instead of more conventional aspirations like every day and every way I'm getting better and better. Wait, <laughs> wait. Oh my God, is that our first is that our first podcast merch or just shirts that say abandon hope? Maybe. Go help yourself. <laughs> um, then I have a little... Uh, poop emoji here that I've drawn. I love that you stenciled a poop emoji. <laughs> it says, hope and fear come from feeling that we lack something. They come mm-hmm. from a sense of poverty. We can't simply relax with ourselves. We hold on to hope and hope robs us of the present moment. We feel that someone else knows what's going on, but that there's something missing in us and therefore oh. something is lacking in our world. That's when I drew the poop emoji. Oh, hold on. That completely and fully answers my question earlier (laughs) about isn't life boring if we're not attached to hope and fear, but it sounds like it's not. It sounds like that's not a place of emptiness. That's actually a place of abundance and contentment Yes, is what she's saying, because I never realized hope came from scarcity. Yes. And so fear is like, I'm afraid I'll lose what I have. And hope is like, I'm hopeful I'll get what I want. And neither one in that dichotomy says you're You've got enough. You're good. Holy shit. The next sentence she says is, rather than letting our negativity get the better of us, we could acknowledge that right now we feel like a piece of shit and not be squeamish about taking a good look. That's the compassionate thing to do. That's the brave (laughs) thing to do. We could smell that piece of shit. We could feel it. What's its texture, color, and shape? Once I was sitting next to a man on an airplane who kept interrupting our conversation to take various pills. I asked him, what is it that you're taking? He answered that they were tranquilizers. I said, oh, are you nervous? And he said, no, not now, but I think when I get home, I'm going to be. (laughs) She said, you can laugh at this story, but what happens when you, what happens with you when you begin to feel uneasy, unsettled, queasy? Notice the panic. Notice when you instantly grab for something. That grabbing is based on hope. Not grabbing is called hopelessness. Oh. Mm-hmm. If hope and fear are two sides of one coin, so are hopelessness and confidence. If we're willing to give up hope that that insecurity and pain can't be exterminated, then we can have the courage to relax with the groundlessness of our situation. Mm. Mm-hmm. This is the first step on the path. Hopelessness is the basic ground. Otherwise, we're going to make this journey with hope of getting security. Um, if we make the journey to get security, we're completely missing the point. It will only lead to disappointment and pain. Begin the journey without hope of getting ground under your feet. Begin it with hopelessness. All anxiety, all dissatisfaction, all the reasons for hoping that our experience could be different are rooted in our fear of death. Fear of death is always in the background. Mm-hmm. Life is like getting into a boat that's just about to sail, sail out to sea and sink. But it's very hard, no matter how much we hear about it, to believe in our own death. That's right. Yeah. We are raised in a culture that fears death and hides it from us. Nevertheless, we experience it all the time. We experience it in the form of disappointment, in the form of things not working out. We experience it in the form of things always being in a process of change. When the day ends, when the second ends, when we breathe out, that's death in everyday life. Death in everyday life could also be defined as experiencing all the things that we don't want. Our marriage isn't working. Our job isn't coming together. Having a relationship with death in everyday life means that we are able to wait, to relax with insecurity, with panic, with embarrassment, with things not working out. With As the years go on, we don't call the babysitter quite so fast. Death and hopelessness provide proper motivation for living an insightful, compassionate life. But most of the time, warding off death is our biggest motivation. Time is passing. It's as natural as the seasons changing and day turning into night. But getting old, getting sick, losing what we love, we don't see those events as natural occurrences. We want to ward off that sense of death no matter what. I never thought of death as jobs not coming together and relationships not working. I always thought of it as like the end of something, Mm -hmm. but I never thought of that concept as death. That actually makes it feel like, oh, I deal with death constantly. Yeah. I mean, like when you say you grieve something. Oh, no, that I understand. But even if it's just like everyday frustration or this out breath. Right. You know what I mean? I never thought of that. It's an interesting way to think about it. It It makes it a lot more palatable. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. She says, can't we just return to the bare bones? Can't we just come back? That's the beginning of the beginning. Mm. Relaxing with the present moment, relaxing with hopelessness, relaxing with death, not resisting the fact that things end, that things pass, that things 
have no lasting substance, that everything is changing all the time, that is the basic message. Mm. When we talk about hopelessness and death, we're talking about facing the facts. No escapism. Mm. We may still have addictions of all kinds, but we cease to believe in them as a gateway to happiness. Mm. Giving up hope is encouragement to stick with yourself, to make friends with yourself, to not run away from yourself, to return to the bare bones no matter what's going on. But if we totally experience hopelessness, giving up all hope of alternatives to the present moment, we can have a joyful relationship with our lives, an honest, direct relationship that no one that no longer ignores the reality and impermanence of death. So in this release, mm-hmm. you have a greater relationship with yourself. You give up this hope, which is um, embracing the hopelessness. I think allows you to be more uh, uh, in with the present moment, I think is what she's saying. Yeah, it it sounds like it. And I have a question for you. Yes. What, how do you reconcile that as an actor? Uh, like sitting in hopelessness. I mean, I, I'm assuming it doesn't mean don't try for anything greater, but just sort of like, yeah, try for your things, but do it without a lot of attachment or be okay with whatever outcome. Yeah, or... I feel like for me, it's definitely helpful because I, I focus on um, process over product, mm. right? I yeah. I can't be attached to the outcome whether I book a job or not. Mm-hmm. I have to be attached to my process. How's my process? And that feels like a really healthy way to, to come from it. Yeah, because I have so little control. Yeah, yeah. So just going, okay, am I enjoying this process? Am I doing the best I can do? Yeah, have I done what I need to do? Like mm-hmm. what? It, what is, you know, what can I control? Which mm-hmm. is none of the outcome. Right. 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 Okay, so this was really dense. I thank you for being here with me. No, it's great. I mean, it's great. I know we we have by accident stumbled into like a month long journey of yeah. these sort of bigger questions yeah. and philosophies yeah. and life things. So, um, you know, I'm curious for everyone listening. Are you liking this? Are yeah. you missing the more practical books? I mean, we have some coming up. Don't worry, yeah. but. Um, yeah, and it's hard, you know, and it, I, I do find that it is harder to sort of infuse these moments with humor, you know, yeah. like our like our episodes have been so far. It's like, oh, this is heavy stuff, but I but I'm not trying to change it, you know, yeah. just sit in what it is. Um, is there anything that you feel so far that the author has gotten wrong? You know, she she sometimes overexplains in a different way than Eckhart overexplains, right? Mm-hmm. Like Eckhart will kind of wind his way around, 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 around. Mm-hmm. And she'll kind of say the same thing over and over and over for four or five different paragraphs. But also it's really hard. It's hard to imagine that hope is just the opposite side of fear. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a weird concept. So, um, well, and I'm always wary of dichotomies in any sense. I do feel like there is a gray area. It's not two sides. You're it's not, not gonna, yes and no. You're it's not, not going to enjoy Buddhism. Yeah. Well, I think it's an oversimplification. I think that's yeah. my qualm. But yeah. also, how do you digest these giant concepts if they're not simplified? It's so, tough. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so next week, we can expect the second half of this book. Yeah, the second. Uh, we're going to kind of skip over um, a couple because uh, chapters. chapters. Um, but I have just kind of basically want to introduce why she thinks meditation is so important. Awesome. That it's it's giving us freedom. It's giving us the ability to live in the present moment, to become friends with ourself, to, um, and, and next time we'll talk more about compassion mm-hmm. and how that will grow and how she sees that that can expand to the whole earth. Oh, cool. Um, and um, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the the specific practices. And so you were feeling out of your depth, your words, when we started this episode. Yeah, because how, it's a how, lot. I still do. How, I was going to say, how has it been to sit in that for like an hour? That's a great question. And try to translate it. I feel, I feel like... Do you remember the Do you remember the Madeline Madeline books? Yes, I love her. I feel like the the sister, the one who's like got all these girls and trying to keep them mm-hmm. safe. Like I, I'm I'm the bearer of these words, and I don't I don't know exactly what it means. The other thing that I think has been really helpful is that um, I do feel this way, and I, but you know the other, and I'm just remembering the other thing that I did this week. I've been listening to the big one. 
podcast? I've been listening to the big one. Oh my god! It's is it terrifying? NPR? It's it's KPCC. Oh, KPCC, which I is can, our, one of our local NPR stations. I cannot stop listening to it. It's good because it's a great. It's like a six part podcast. It's about the impending um, major earthquake that we're going to have in Los Angeles on the San Andreas Fault. Any any time now. We're like one hundred and sixty years into a one hundred year cycle. Yeah, so we're due, and so it's a wonderful exploration of um, science and um, psychology. And and narrative, why, and narrative storytelling as yeah. to why people don't prepare or why people do, et cetera. Yeah. People who've experienced major earthquakes, et cetera. But this line of thinking has really helped me because it is inevitable. Yeah. And I, the hope and the fear, I don't have to have either of those. I can just have this groundlessness of— You will literally have groundlessness if there was an earthquake, <laughs> But you know what I mean? Like, I can do what I can do to prepare— but nothing is going to stop this earthquake from coming. And it's worth it to stay in Los Angeles and pursue what you're pursuing and risk that? Yeah, because, I mean, there are natural disasters everywhere yeah. you go. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just so so having this kind of perspective has been helpful in helping me not spiral out of it. Great. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Great job. Thank you're you. doing great. Write in, everyone. Let's judge Lisa. Let, tell us how she's doing. Oh, God. Just to me. I won't tell her anything. Thank you. You're welcome. Lisa, what would you say life is? Abundant. Goodbye. Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know you can also find us on the social medias. Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast. Twitter at G-H-Y podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.